Well, today we are continuing with our My Best Advice series, and we're in the second week of what's going to turn out to be three weeks uh, of My Best Advice on dealing with disappointment. It's become kind of its own little mini-series within this uh, larger series. We're still using the same outline uh, for all three weeks, and I've highlighted uh, in your outline today what we covered last week, what we're going to cover today, and uh, what we'll uh, cover next week. Uh, Because of the way I'm doing this, there's really very little detail uh, of today's message in the outline, uh, but I will let you know when we get to that uh, fill-in-the-blank section. Uh, Last week, we considered the first of four biblical responses uh, to disappointment that I've been wanting to share with you. Uh, We we found the first one in Philippians chapter 4, and uh, that was that we should respond to disappointment by praying and thinking on good things. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen online or get the CD and, uh, and check that out. For today and next week, we're going to find uh, the next three biblical responses to disappointment from uh, looking at the lives of two men in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to look uh, at the life of Job, uh, and then uh, next week, we're going to look at the life of uh, Joseph. And both of these men serve as case studies in responding, dealing with uh, disappointment. Uh, Many of you here today are probably familiar with the story of Job, but many of you may not be. And since I didn't think you would want me to read the full 42 chapters of the book of Job, uh, I decided that I would just kind of summarize and tell you a little bit about Job's story. Uh, Job's story is found in the book of the Bible that bears his name. If you're not aware of that, it's right after the book of Esther, right before uh, the book of Psalms. If you would want to read it this week or over the next couple of weeks, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating uh, read. And we're told in the early verses of the book of Job that Job was a blameless and upright man. Uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty high, high compliment, blameless and upright man. He feared God and he shunned evil. You, you, you can't say anything better about a, a person than that. Blameless, upright, fear God, shunned evil. What a commendable man. What a, what a God-honoring man. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And, and we're told that he was a very blessed man. He was a wealthy man. He owned 7,000 sheep. He owned 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants that helped him to take care of, to manage uh, these vast resources that he had. And the, the text tells us that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East, a good man a God-honoring man, a blessed and wealthy man. The text then transitions into an account of an interaction between Satan and God. And in this interaction, God commended Job to Satan. It's almost as if God was so pleased with Job that he wanted to point out to Satan what a failure Satan had been in trying to corrupt Job, like he's trying to corrupt all of us. And so God pointed out to Satan that there was no one in the entire earth like Job. God 
told Satan that Job was blameless and upright. He told Satan that Job feared him. He told uh, Satan that Job shunned evil. And Satan had a very interesting response to this. He, he said to God, of course Job serves you. You've blessed him. You've prevented anything bad from ever happening to him. Why wouldn't he serve you? You've put a hedge of protection about him. Everything is good in his life. Why wouldn't he serve you? Satan was suggesting that Job was only into God for what Job could get from God. And so certain of this was Satan, that he said to God, but if you will stretch out your hand and strike everything that Job has, he will surely curse you to your face. And so God, God responds and he He takes up this challenge and he says, very well then, everything Job has is in your power, Satan. Do what you want, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Do what you want, but don't harm him personally. You know, you might be tempted to ask why God would agree to this kind of testing of such a good man, and uh, I, I, I struggle with that. You know, God, why, why do that? And God, please don't do that with me. Uh, you know, why would you do that to him? And uh, Matthew Henry, a theologian from the uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, I think did a, an excellent job uh, kind of answering that question for us. And so I wanted to read you what he, he wrote. He said, God declared Job the best man then living. Now, if Satan can prove this best man a hypocrite, it will follow that God had not one faithful servant among men and that there was no such thing as true and sincere piety in the world, but that religion was all a sham. In other words, all piety, all religion would be revealed as simply an attempt to secure temporal blessing from God. Nothing more than another tactic, another means of trying to acquire worldly wealth and status. We, we still might not be too thrilled that God agreed to this, uh, this arrangement, and so Henry helps us a little further. He says, it is a matter of wonder that God should give Satan such a permission as this, but he did it for his own glory, for the honor of Jacob, for the explanation of his providence, and for the encouragement of afflicted people through all ages. It is a matter of comfort that God has the devil in a chain. He could not afflict Job without leave from God, first ask and obtained, and then no further than he had leave. The devil's power is limited. And so God grants Satan permission to test Job's faith. And in rapid succession, here are the calamities that befall Job. His oxen and donkeys are all stolen, and the servants who were tending them are all killed except for one. Lightning destroyed Job's sheep and killed the servants who were tending the sheep except for one. 
The Chaldeans stole all of Job's camels and killed the servants who were caring for them, except one. There was always one preserved to come back and report the news of what had happened. A great wind caused the collapse of the house that Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking in, killing all of them, as well as their servants, except for one who remained to report back to Job what had happened. Devastating calamity. You want to talk about disappointment, this is profound disappointment. And here's how Job responded to all of that. In verses 20 through 22 of chapter 1, and in fact, the song we sang today, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, comes uh, from, from this, at least I think it does. It ought to if it doesn't. <laughs> and, uh, and here's what it said, uh, what Job said. Naked I, came in to, uh, to the, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord's given me all of this that I, that I had, and now the Lord has taken it all away from me. Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. What an amazing, faith-filled, God-honoring response. That he could say that after all of these things is incredible and speaks to what a commendable man he really was. And so Satan comes back to the Lord. The Lord points out that Job had remained faithful to him. And Satan responds, but if you will strike his flesh and bones, you you see, God, you still protected his physical person. But if now you will strike him physically, he'll curse you. And so now God goes even further and says, okay, Satan, I give you permission to afflict Job physically, but you still must stop short of taking his life. And so here's what then happened to Job. His entire body from the top of his head to the soles of his feet became covered in painful boils. We're told that the pain was so intense that Job took pottery and scraped the boils. I'm not entirely certain how that helps, but that's, that's what he did. He took took pottery and scraped his boils. His his friends came to see him, and he was so disfigured by the boils that they did not recognize him. So great were Job's afflictions, the loss of everything that he had, the loss of his children. Now he's covered from head to toe in boils that his his wife comes along, and she uh, unwittingly prodded him to fulfill Satan's prediction. And she said to Job, curse God and die. Let's get it over with. Curse him and die. And Job, once again, comes back with a faithful response. And he says to his wife, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Another amazing response. Such a faithful response. Now, we've all grasped what's happened to this man, right? 
In a very short time frame, wealth stolen, servants killed, children died, covered in boils, and now his wife, who, who you want to be encouraging and supportive and helpful and, and help you get through this situation, his wife comes along and says, please just curse God and die. Talk about disappointment. So someone last Sunday uh, commented after the service that, uh, you know, I said I was going to be talking about Job. They uh, noted that applying the word disappointment to Job's life is quite an understatement. And, and I agree, it needs adjectives attached to it. Profound disappointment, horrific disappointment, unbelievable disappointment from blessed and wealthy to wealth all gone, kids gone, health decimated, devastating calamity profound disappointment. And to this point in the story, Job has responded with amazing faith. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May his name be praised. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? His faith has been remarkable. But starting in chapter three, the story turns a bit. It gets a little... A little uh, more difficult, a little more complicated. It seems as though the, the weight of Job's situation bears down on him harder than what it first had hit him. And, and Job enters this prolonged period where he begins to despair. Not only does he despair, but he has some very unhelpful friends who, who, who come along and they offer the oddest responses to someone who's in need of comfort. His three friends come along, and for much of the 42 chapters of the book of Job, these friends basically argue with Job, trying to convince him that he is having all of this trouble because there is hidden sin in his life, and he's being punished by God. Now remember, God said that Job was a blameless and upright man. But Job's friends insist that he must be hiding sin in his life or these things would not be happening to him. Great friends. Great friends. I, I mean, imagine the scenario. Lost everything, covered in boils, and now your friends gather around you and say, we know there's hidden sin in your life. Just admit it and you'll be blessed again. You know, it's not the focus of today's message, but, but here's something I think we need to take from this story. It is a foolish game to try to discern whether someone is pleasing or displeasing God by the circumstances of their lives. It is a foolish game. And I'm afraid too many Christians, like Job's friends, play that game. I love Job's reply to his friends. It's found in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Here's what he says. You are miserable comforters. <laughs> All of you, you're miserable comforters. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> miserable comforters. So chapters 3 through 38 of Job basically amount to Job's friends trying to convince him that he's got hidden sin in his life. 
Job defending himself against his friends. And then there's this other thing, Job venting his frustrations to God. Job's friends were unfair to him, and they were wrong that there was hidden sin in his life. But as the story unfolds, we find that even men who God calls blameless and upright are not perfect men. There's only been one of those. And what we find out about Job as the story unfolds is that somewhere deep down on the inside of his being, he had believed something that his initial responses did not reveal. While he had objected to his friends saying calamity was evidence of hidden sin, he is revealed to have believed that faithfulness ought to secure blessing and prosperity. He knows he's been faithful to God. But everything has been stripped from him. God is not doing what God's supposed to do. And so he despairs of life. He knows he's been faithful, and in return, he's received nothing but trouble. And he looks around him, and he sees unfaithful people who life is going quite well for. You ever made that observation? Yep. So Job, faithful man that he is, nevertheless begins to vent his great unhappiness toward God. He he basically begins to accuse God of not making sense, being arbitrary in his dealing with men. Uh, Again, not keeping up this agreement of I remain faithful and you bless me. The parts of Job's story that have always stood out to me have been his statements of faith. Statements of faith in spite of great difficulty. And when those statements stand out as his due, sometimes we lose sight of exactly how deep Job went into despair. Exactly how deep his questions about God really were. How frustrated he really became with his situation. You know, I've often, because I've focused so much on those statements of faith, I have often perceived Job in my own mind as like this man that everything happened to, and no matter what happened, he just stood straight up and said, even if he kills me, I still trust in him. But the story's more complicated than that. It's way more complicated than that. And I'm thankful that as I prepared over the last couple weeks, I was reminded, and I remind you now, that Continuing to trust God was not an easy thing for Job. It was a very difficult thing. God wasn't doing what Job believed he should do. He had lost everything. And just more and more is revealed throughout the book. I mean, people who used to respect him no longer respect him. Uh, His uh, friends, as I've already said, said he was hiding sin. His wife wants him to curse God and die. And it all weighed down on Job so much that he basically let God know that God was not doing what God ought to be doing. Ever felt that way? I have. I have. God's not doing what he ought to. Now, God is patient with our questions. 
God understands our struggles. But when we cross over and we begin to accuse God, we are wrong. Job was wrong to accuse God because God doesn't do anything wrong. And so God lets him know this. Chapters 38 through 41 is where we're told that God spoke to Job out of the storm. And let me summarize what God said to Job in those chapters in one line, okay? You don't know nearly enough to question me about how I'm doing as God. You don't know near enough. God said this to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. You you know a lot. You know how I should be doing everything. Surely you know how I marked off the dimensions of the earth. You know, it's been noted in recent times that many of the questions that God uh, posed to Job have now been answered by science. And it's been noted that, you know, that, that men could respond to God with some of those questions now. But this starting point, tell me how it all started in the beginning, if you're so smart, remains something that only God answer. And I love this from chapter 38 and verse 21. God says to Job, surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. I have finally found proof that God approves of sarcasm. And I am thankful because Christians have told me for years he doesn't, but he does. And so I'm good. I'm good. God was sarcastic with Job. Job wasn't born when the earth was formed. Job's years amounted to nothing compared to God's infinite existence. And so God, in these chapters, lets Job know that he simply is not qualified to decide that God isn't doing the job of God correctly. Have you ever done that? Have you ever railed against God for not doing what he ought to do? I have. I have. Have you ever had God put you in your place and remind you that you really don't know enough to be engaging in this uh, accusation? Certainly not enough to determine he isn't doing what he ought to do. Once God finished reminding Job that Job didn't know nearer as much as he thought, this upright but imperfect man admitted that he had been wrong and how he had reacted to all this trouble. And so chapter 42 records his repentance. Here's what Job says. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. My ears had heard of you, but but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In our disappointment about things in our lives, difficulty in our lives, friends, we have to remember how much we don't understand. We have to remember that God has a perspective that we do not have. God forgave Job, and the end of the book lets us know that the latter part of Job's life was more blessed than the former part. Job experienced more blessing and more wealth, and he died an old man and full of years. So that's the story. A good and blessed man loses everything. He sinks deep into despair. He questions God. He vents his frustrations with God. God sets him straight, and Job repents. Now let's go back to the beginning of the story again. Satan said to God, let trouble come on Job, and surely he will curse you to your face. Job's wife encouraged him to curse God and die. Job did express frustration to God. He vented to God. He he became angry enough with God that he had to repent for his attitude toward God. But Job never cursed God. He struggled. He questioned. He vented. But he never lost faith. Now the faith got really weak. But he held on to it. He never cursed God. He never turned his back on God. It wasn't always pretty. And I take great comfort in that. Because my walk with God and my attitude toward God is not always pretty. It wasn't always free of complaining. And I'm thankful for that. Because my walk with God has not always been free of complaining. It was not always free of wishing God would and thinking God should do things differently. And I'm thankful for the story because my own walk with God has not always been free of thinking that God ought to do some things differently. And I'm guessing your life hasn't been free of that either. But through it all, and this is the fill in the blank on your, on your outline. Through it all, Job decided to remain faithful to God no matter what. Remain faithful to God no matter what. In the midst of his trials, he said this in chapter 19 and verse 25. I know my Redeemer lives And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Faith weak. Faith weak. But not so weak that he cannot declare my redeemer lives. In chapter 13, In verse 15, probably the most famous line from the book of Job, uh, Job said this, Though he, God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And and I'd like to report to you that 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 is as 
as clear as what it sounds, but it's actually kind of complicated in its context. Job was actually in the point where he was defending himself against God. And in a sense, he was saying, I will defend myself to God's face even if he kills me for doing it. But even in that place, there is still in here this expression of faith that will not go away. Even if God slays me, I will hope in him. Job questioned, he vented, but he never cursed God. He continued to trust God. It was weak, but he continued to trust, even when he questioned what God was up to. He questioned God in the context of continuing to choose to trust, even though his faith was weak. Last week, we learned that when we're faced with disappointment, we need to pray and think on good things. And today, from the life of Job, we are encouraged that when we're faced with disappointment, we must remain faithful and we must choose to trust God no matter what, trusting that he understands what we don't understand. So are you disappointed today? Pray. Think on good things. Determine this morning, I commit to remain faithful to God. Commit to trust him. No matter what the circumstances of your life are, do not allow difficulty to cause you to turn your back on God. I think there are some people here today who difficulty in your life is causing you to entertain the possibility of just walking away from God. And I hope that today this story of Job, this example of Job will persuade you otherwise. It's okay if your faith is weak. It's okay if you're not happy with how things are. You've got to hold on to your faith. You've got to remain faithful Even when it's difficult, you've got to choose to trust God no matter what. And here's what results when we do. It's happened in Job's life. It happens in our lives as we remain faithful through the difficulty. And it's what Matthew Henry pointed out to us that I shared early in the message. Job's patience in his suffering proved Satan to be a false accuser and a liar. As we remain faithful to God in the midst of our own disappointments and our own difficulties, we prove Satan wrong when he says that we are only into God for what we can get from God. We expose Satan as the liar that he is, and we glorify God. God is glorified when we remain faithful through the difficult times that we don't understand and we intensely dislike. God is glorified when we serve him for who he is instead of only serving him for what we can get from him. If you're remaining faithful and you're trusting God in your disappointment and in your difficulty, God is pleased with you. 
and your life is bringing glory to him. If you're here today and you are in that, even in that place of despair that Job was in, where where your faith is so weak, you're barely hanging on, but if you are hanging on, you are pleasing God and you're bringing glory to him. Let's stand. The worship team is going to come.